You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You guys, we are busy people who live in a busy world. Busy people who live in a busy world. Over the last few years, I've started to pay closer and closer attention to the things we say to one another when we're catching us up on our lives. The things that we talk about when we're speaking about our identity or how we're doing. And over and over again, I'm reminded of our obsession with busyness. You guys caught up on this? Think about it. When you ask someone how they're doing, what's their twofold response typically? One, I'm good. Two, I'm busy. Those are the two things that we say. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. I'm busy. How are things? They're good. They're busy. We all do this. I do this all the time. I catch myself saying it. We've somehow in our culture equated busyness with goodness and health. We've done that accidentally and it leaks into our language. There's a hashtag that's been making the rounds lately. Those of you that are social media people or internet people have heard this. Rise and grind. You guys heard that phrase? Yeah. It's like a badge of honor. Yeah, Stephen knows all about Rise and Grind. Guys, there's a New York Times bestseller entitled Rise and Grind. You can go to YouTube and search, and there are uh, motivational speech after motivational speech entitled Rise and Grind. Those of you that aren't as familiar with the hashtag, it's basically all about how we need to be busy from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, or else we're not maximizing our lives. We need to be constantly filling our lives with things, and people praise that in our world. I still remember the first time that I was introduced to this uh, busy sort of culture. It happened uh, over and over for me when I was in college. I was an English major as an undergrad. Any other liberal arts majors in the room? Oh, a couple? Yeah, you're shy? No, this is good. Be proud that you have a degree that no one in the world seems to care about or understand. But that's okay. That's okay. It's okay. No, it's really, really important. I take pride in my, my English degree. Uh, It's helped me in ways that uh, many people wouldn't foresee. But I remember when I was speaking with adults and parents and friends and things like that about my degree program, and uh, I'd tell them, yeah, I'm majoring in English, and they'd say, oh, so what are you going to do with that? That was always the response every single time. What are you going to do with that? And besides being a little bit belittling to me, it's also really interesting the assumption that lies underneath that question. See, they weren't asking me what sort of person is your degree shaping you into. They didn't ask me, how is this forming you? They asked me, well, how is this going to fit into the busy world? How is this going to contribute to the status quo? What's your occupation going to be? How are you going to be occupied with that? They had frameworks for pre-med majors or for nursing majors or uh, computer science majors, but they didn't have a framework for an English major. How's that going to keep you busy? Our whole culture is obsessed with busyness, and we're so consumed with it that we're actually terrified at not being busy. Trivia question for you. I actually want to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Uh, There was a study done back in 2016, so a few years ago, and they uh, basically researched how many times smartphone users touch their phone on a daily basis. Not unlock it, just touch their phone. Shout out some numbers. How many many times do you think, on average, a smartphone user touches their phone per day? 400. 100. A little more confidence in humanity there, 100. 2,000. The answer is 2,617 times per day. Sarah's really hyped. She was close. (laughs) Closest without going over. If this was Price is Right, Sarah would be running up to the front. She'd be right here. (laughs) Yeah. 
We're terrified of not being busy. We are constantly looking for something to keep us occupied. Our minds and our hearts can't be still. There's a philosopher named Baruch Spinoza who talks about this. He called it the horror vacui. There's a, the beautiful picture of Baruch Spinoza. This long flowing locks. He called this the fear of vacancy. We're terrified of emptiness, of stillness in our lives. And the reality is that when we live long enough in a world of busyness like this, it starts to shape us. See, our busyness leads us to assume that the good life, life of meaning and purpose, peace and love and fullness, that it's obtainable through rapid means. We need to get as much as we can as quickly as we can. We become so consumed with busyness that we can only think in terms of speed, rapidness, here and now. We look for quick fixes and comforts. And so our food has become fast, which is a really hilarious idea, right? Food doesn't run, food doesn't move. But we've insisted that food is fast in our culture. We need delivery services to get us the exact thing that we want within 24 hours. And if it doesn't come in that time, we're really frustrated. If you don't have Wi-Fi, I'm not showing up to your coffee shop. It's just not happening. Because I need things now. I need it quick. I need to be efficient. How can I get anything done without Wi-Fi? We consume ads over and over that promise us the good life is just one car purchase or one body wash purchase or one laundry detergent away from us. Beautiful people tell us that the beautiful life is just a little bit of consumption away. Just a little more. Just get this one thing. Get it as soon as you can. Get it as quickly as you can. You deserve it. The good life is yours. You just got to reach out and grasp it for only three easy payments of 1999. You can have the life you're looking for. There's a cultural commentator and author named Gore Vidal who called this our passion for the immediate and casual. We have a passion for the immediate and casual. And that same passion, if we're not careful, starts to leak into our spiritual lives too. We start to become people who just want one inspiring verse. Give me one inspiring verse that I can treat like a fortune cookie that'll make me feel better today. Give me one piece of advice that will just solve my problems. Pastor, therapist, counselor, just give me a piece of advice. Let me get rid of this problem. Let's move on from this quickly, rapidly. Give me one inspiring church service, one big crowd with a bunch of music blaring so that I can feel better about my life. We're living in a spiritual and emotional insta-culture. And we're rushing around that culture, looking for the next thing that can give us life. There's just one problem. It's not working. The insta-culture is failing us in every way. It's not giving us the good life we're longing for. It's actually moving us in the other direction. Underneath the surface of our insta-culture right now are people who live lives of loneliness, isolation, relational distance from others, depression, anxiety. Those are par for the course today. There's a prominent and renowned therapist named Edwin Friedman who put it this way. He said, the anxiety is so deep within the emotional processes of our nation that it's almost as though neurosis has become nationalized. Friends, we have more and more things at our fingertips to bring us life, and we're finding less and less satisfaction from those things. We have the ability to get whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want it, and it's failing us. Rapid, quick things don't give us life. And so we're left asking a crucially important question. This is something that most people in our world are asking themselves. How do we get the good life? How do we get the good life? 
we're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown called When Things Fall Apart. We're looking at the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote and lived amidst a people who were often looking for quick fixes. who were often, often rushing around the world looking for the next best thing to give them life. And it's in our text today that we see Jeremiah lived a different way. He lived a way that teaches us the pathway to true, lasting, emotional, and physical and spiritual health. Jeremiah's life teaches us the good life in the midst of a culture that was failing to find it. So if you have a Bible, friends, turn in it with me to the book of Jeremiah. This is near the end of your Old Testament. If you're flipping there, look for the big number 25 when you get there. We're going to be in chapter 25, starting in verse 1. I'll have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along as well. Jeremiah chapter 25, starting in In verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah. That was the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which the prophet Jeremiah spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I've spoken persistently to you, but you haven't listened. And though the Lord persistently sent you all his servants, the prophets, you've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear when they said, turn now, every one of you, from your evil way and wicked doings, and you'll remain upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your ancestors from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then... I will do you no harm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To understand uh, the prophet Jeremiah and what he has to teach us about living the good life, it's helpful to understand a road, a road that runs from France to Spain. It's called the Camino de Santiago. It's a 500-mile walk in one direction for 40 days. It's believed uh, that after the resurrection of Jesus, the first century apostle James walked this very path by foot through treacherous and beautiful weather conditions to proclaim the gospel, God's love and grace and peace to the ancient world. And it's said that he concluded his journey in the Santiago de Compostela, which is in Spain. His remains are actually still there to this day. And if you want to walk the Camino, you can only bring with you the things that you can't leave behind. You have to carry everything with you on your back, so you can only bring what is necessary for the day. 500 miles, and all you do on this pilgrimage is walk west. That's it. That's all that's required of you. 10 to 20 miles a day every day with some breaks in between. And there's great diversity on this walk. This is one stretch here. This is uh, between the towns of Burgos and Lyon, and it's a little dry, it's a little desolate, it's a little dusty. This Look right here, this view will last you about 10 days. Nonstop, 10 days on this dry and dusty path. You're going to get blisters for sure. Your body's going to ache a little bit. Your knees might start to act up. Your hips might start to throb. But there are also some stretches like this on the walk. Beautiful, flowing green hills, lush valleys, places you can stroll under the cool of shade and stop at vineyards for a glass of wine on the way. And that's actually a helpful reminder for us that on this Camino, it's not all the same. And it's actually about walking through both of those areas on your journey. It's a pilgrimage that goes through different arenas. And that's why people come to the Camino with different purposes. 
They show up to walk this path, sometimes because they have some pain in their lives. They need to work through that pain. They need to walk through that pain. And in 500 miles, you've got a lot of time to do that. Some people show up to connect with God for the first time or for the thousandth time. They walk this path looking to get close to the divine. And some people walk this path to learn more about themselves. They've got a crossroads in their life and they need to make a big decision. And so they show up and ask God questions like, what's next? What are you doing in and through me? Now, in all honesty, guys, you could show up to the Camino and skip all the dry, dusty parts if you wanted. We live in an insta-culture. You could drive past it, you could fly past it. You don't have to walk this full 500-mile path. But if you decide to go, I'd recommend not doing that. Because the point of the Camino is not these picturesque views alone. The point of the Camino is the walk. The point of the Camino is the pilgrimage and what it does in us. See, the Camino de Santiago is a long obedience in the same direction. I borrow that phrase from a philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, He's a brilliant guy. He was very anti-Christian, didn't love the idea of Jesus, but he's got some incredible observations. I can't uh, full sale recommend everything he said, but I think he nails it here. This is in his book, Beyond Good and Evil. He's talking about how we get the good life, and he says this. The essential thing in heaven and in earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, that thereby results in the long run in something that makes life worth living. Virtue, art, music, dancing, reason, spirituality, anything whatsoever that is transfiguring, refined, foolish, or divine. You see what he's getting at here? The essential component to the good life is committed perseverance towards the thing that makes life worth living. And that pursuit may lead us in a variety of different areas, right? He lists a bunch of them, virtue and art and music and the rest. But the point is clear, the good life is not something that comes to us rapidly. It's not something that comes to us immediately. It's not found in an insta-culture. It's found only in steady, committed, day after day, faithfulness. It's found in every faithful step along the dusty paths of the Camino of our lives. The good life is a long obedience in the same direction. And that's actually precisely the reason we're still reading about Jeremiah. These texts are thousands of years old. We don't read many people who existed at Jeremiah's time, but we read him. Why? Because his life was a long obedience in the same direction. That's what chapter 25 tells us here in a couple different ways. First, did you notice how long at this point in the story Jeremiah has been preaching the gospel, preaching the message of God's love and grace? 23 years. For context, that's 23 years of Jeremiah waking up early and praying with God. That's 23 years of Jeremiah speaking the message of God to these people. That's 23 years of embodying God's love and grace to the world. 23 years. Some of you in this room haven't even been alive that long. And we also hear in this passage how his culture responded. Ignorance. They didn't care. They didn't listen. That's what verses 3 and 4 are saying here. He's been preaching this message and no one listens to him. He was speaking to a world that was constantly running after the next best thing. For them, that meant the next best God who could get them the prosperity or power or hope that they were looking for. And so they chased after gods of sex, gods of wealth, gods of power, prosperity. They didn't have this long obedience in the same direction, this commitment to love and peace and justice. And as a result, their lives were distracted 
idolatrous, soft and wandering and watered down, forgettable. We don't read about the people from Jeremiah's culture. We read about Jeremiah's life. See, Jeremiah was looking for a full and robust and holistic life filled with virtue and character. And these people were looking for momentary and fading bliss. Sound familiar? Sounds just like our Insta culture, where we chase after the next best thing, the next God that will give us the satisfaction that we're looking for. Jeremiah's 23 years, friends, are giving us the solution to a culture that's not satisfying these deep longings for life. He's saying that the good life is found not in constant rushing around, it's found in commitment in the long haul. 23 years. A few years back, my wife Emily and I bought our home that we're currently living in. Back in 2018, we bought it a real lucky time. And uh, that first fall, after we bought our home, we bought it in the summer, uh, it was time to do some landscaping out back, and we decided what we wanted to do. So we uh, decided we would do some rye grass, some winter grass, really beautiful green grass. Uh, and basically, in order to do that, you've got to mow your lawn down super, super low, to the point where almost there's no grass left. And then you've got to scatter a bunch of seed around that lawn. And then you water that lawn for a long time. And I started to do something in my life after we put these seeds down that's one of the weirdest things I've ever done in my life. I can't explain it to you. I'll just tell you what I did. So I'd wake up in the morning, early in the morning, get my day started. I'd get my glass of water, customary glass of water. I'd walk out to the back room in our house, and I'd just stare at my lawn for like five minutes straight, just stare at it. And there were birds out there, and I'd get mad, and I'd tap on, don't, don't take the seed, the seed's there. I'm looking for any little bit of growth. Every morning, I'm looking for a little bit of growth in the grass. You know what happened? Nothing. On no morning could I perceive any growth in that grass. I was like, nothing's happening. This is a waste of time. Why do we do this? Right? But we kept watering, bit by bit, each and every day. And slowly, over time, I can't tell you how the grass grew or when the grass grew, but it grew. Weeks and weeks later, I had to mow down our grass. We had too much. You guys, <laughs> the good life can only be found, the good lawn can only be found in daily, steady faithfulness and commitment. And if you are peering into your life trying to manufacture growth, if you're trying to make it happen by grasping all of these things, it's, it's not going to work. It's going to fail you. You're never going to see real growth. Those weird morning traditions for me, I was straining at insta-growth and it wasn't happening. And the reality was the solution was there. Just keep watering. Keep watering. And that's true if we really look around our lives. The things we really want, the things we're really longing for, don't happen in a day. Love isn't something that happens in a day, despite what predominant romantic comedies will tell you. Love is something that is cultivated over a lifetime through the dry stretches and through the lush valleys. Peace is not a feeling given to us when we just get the next thing. Peace is something that comes when we deeply and slowly and meaningfully pursue God and listen to God and receive God in our lives. And the reality is there are days when that sort of growth is going to be really challenging because it's going to feel like nothing's happening. It's going to feel like no grass is growing. It's going to feel like you took one step forward and two steps back. That's how Jeremiah felt. We actually covered this last week in his lament. No one listened to him. No one paid attention to him. You're thinking there weren't days where he was like, what the hell, God? I've been doing this faithfully and nothing's happening. 
We know that there will be a challenge of resisting the quick fixes of our day, and we have to remember that Jeremiah's faithfulness was not dependent on immediate results. He was committed to God's love and grace because those are worth committing to, independent of what the results look like in my life. Even if that leads me into the pit, even if that leads me into the prison, even if that leads me to be hated by the world around me, the love and the grace and the justice and the peace of God is worth it. That's the thing that sustains us. That's the thing that gives us life, not the immediate results. And that's such a radical notion in our culture. You look at Instagram and you see immediate results. You look anywhere on the internet, you see immediate results. Why can't I look like that person? Why can't I have that sort of life? It's fleeting, friends. True life is found in a long obedience in the same direction. And so when we face those days of challenge, when we're straining at our grass trying to find growth, we should ask ourselves a couple important questions. Are we willing to play the long game? Are we willing to cultivate a way of being that focuses on God's big picture of redemption and restoration in us and in the world? Are we willing to learn from Jeremiah and his 23 years? But it's important to notice here, Jeremiah's life isn't just about the long game. It's also about how we walk in the midst of that long game. It's about what we do in the day to day. That's why he uses another word here, persistence. He uses it twice in this passage. He uses it over 11 times that span the beginning to the end of his ministry. His life was characterized by persistence. Jeremiah knew that if he was going to get the good life with and for God, he could only get it by starting right now today in persistence. The Camino can only be walked one step at a time, one hour at a time, one day at a time. In fact, that's why on the Camino, when you travel, you actually carry with you a scallop shell. Looks like this. And it's about as big as your hand. And it's actually a useful tool. Like you can drink out of it. You can scoop things with it. But it also has a theological purpose on the Camino. It's a reminder that all you have on your journey is what you can hold right here. All you have on your journey is what you can hold in a given moment. You have your backpack. You have what you have in that day. The shell is a reminder that all you can do is be faithful to what's in your hands. That's it. And that shell, you look down, it's about as big as your hand, and you say, this is what I have to carry. This is what I have to bring with me. So I have to be faithful in this thing. Friends, we can only work with what we've got in a given moment. The only proper pathway to life is one that lives in steady persistence on the day-to-day. We can't become people that are preoccupied with what has been or what might be in the future. Worry about such things is not going to lead us to the good life. Jesus warns us of that. All we have is what we can do here and now. All we can do is be persistent followers of God, waking every morning and going to sleep every evening, considering what God is doing in and through us. So are we willing to let God's priorities of love and grace and peace and justice, are we willing to let those priorities shape our priorities today? Are we willing to faithfully pray and love and care for our neighbors today? And here's the truth. In all honesty, most of us sitting in this room would say, yeah, that sounds great. I will leave this room and I will be hyped up about letting God's priorities shape my priorities. And then you'll get to Thursday. Everyone hates Thursday. It's not quite Friday. You're not quite to the end of the week, right? Thursday is when this starts to really get challenged. We know that our spirits are going to start to fade. We know that we're going to lose some initial fervor to find the good life. Our prayer and our energy is going to fade. And 
It's kind of the human condition. We as humans always know that there's a life out there that we're longing for, and we always know that we can't quite grasp it ourselves. And that's actually why the Christian message is so important. Because the Christian message assumes that we're not able to get it on our own. It assumes that we are dependent creatures who rely upon God persistently in our lives. So this is not a message of buck up and do better. This is not a motivational speech. This is not a self-help sermon. The whole point of this message is that we are waking every day in reliance upon God, listening to God, trusting him, calling out in our need to him. That's what persistence looks like. Jeremiah's persistence is not a testament to the greatness of the human will. It's a testament to the faithfulness of God and what it looks like to rely upon him day after day after day. The good life can only come through a long obedience in the same direction. So Jeremiah exemplifies for us, but he's not the only one. There's another man whose name starts with a J. You guys may have heard his name. Jesus? Jesus lived a long obedience in the same direction, not long after the story. And if you look at Jesus' life, just without thinking about, you know, it's in the Bible and it's what we base our faith on, if you just look at the life, it's really unremarkable. He was born in a no-name town called Nazareth to a, a teen mom who was probably ostracized by her culture because they didn't really understand how this pregnancy came about. There were lots of rumors about her. And then he was raised doing a day-laboring job, carpentry. He did that for 30 years before he ever started ministry. 30 years! That's longer than Jeremiah. And then, even when he started ministry, he didn't do it in the outwardly impressive ways. He was somebody who cultivated really close relationships with a tight-knit group of people. And those people, by the way, were really unimpressive people. That's actually one of the big hopes, is that the people who Jesus called and formed this faith on are really unimpressive, which gives us a lot of hope, I'd say. His disciples were fishermen, day laborers, unremarkable people. And then Jesus said that his kingdom was going to be built on those very people, the least impressive. This is just inefficient business practice on Jesus' part. It's not how you build an organization. That's not how you make something thrive in our world. But Jesus said that what's more important than immediate uh, success, it's a long obedience in the same direction. It's faithfulness to the right people in the right ways, the right places. And then Jesus died an unjust criminal's death at the hands of a massive empire. They controlled history. He was cast aside by them. To the Romans, he was just another casualty. But it was Jesus' quiet and persistent and steady faithfulness that brought life not just to himself, but to every person he interacted with. That's actually the whole point of the Gospels, is that everywhere Jesus goes, life springs out from him. Life extends forth. It heals the blind. It makes the lame walk. That's what happens in Jesus' life. And then, the great thing that defeats us all, death, couldn't defeat Jesus. This long obedience, this thing that was unimpressive when he lived in the day-to-day, actually becomes the very thing that we build our entire faith upon. Everything is built upon the cross and the resurrection. Jesus promises us that when we follow him in a long obedience in the same direction, that we'll end up having life ourselves as well. Eternal life that starts now and extends beyond our death, extends into the resurrection itself. So guys, we can't grab the good life on our own terms. We can't make this happen. God does. And so are we willing to rely upon God, as Jeremiah did, as 
Jesus did every day. So what does that look like? What does it mean to rely upon God? Well, there's a few different practices I think we can cultivate. We can look at Jeremiah and Jesus and say, this is how they did this. One, they were people who prayed all the time. And in an over-busy world, the notion of stopping to pray sounds insane. You're going to stop in the middle of your highly efficient workday to orient yourself towards God? Waste of time. That's what most people in our world will say. But prayer isn't about efficiency. It's about orientation. It's about aiming ourselves in the right direction, ensuring that everything we're doing is out of the right place. Prayer is the refusal to be defined by the hurried pace of our world and an insistence on being defined by faithfulness to God. Mother Teresa gives a helpful tip for how to start this. Prayer can be this really intimidating thing. She helps us really simply. She says, every morning, wake up and say these three words. Good morning, Jesus. Good morning, Jesus. What do you have for me today? What can I join you in doing? Good morning, Jesus. So this notion that prayer is this radical anti-instaculture thing, that's actually why we're going to start practicing it more regularly here at Midtown. Before services, starting in a couple weeks, we're going to pray together before uh, Sundays, before we gather here. Before we start thinking about practical putting together of a service or loving our neighbors, we're just going to stop and pray. Everyone in our church is going to be invited every week, 7.30, every morning. For a half hour, we're going to pray together because we want to be people who are oriented in the right direction in everything we do. Another thing that we learn from Jeremiah and Jesus, we learn that we need to spend time and love those who are overlooked by the world. And that is not going to get you farther up the corporate ladder. That's not going to be a great resume builder. Nobody looks and says, man, look at who they're hanging out with. But Jesus says that it's precisely in those spaces that we find him. We find his love, we find his grace, we find his justice at work. It won't look impressive, but that's where the good life is. Seek the people who are overlooked. Seek the people who are less impressive to the world. It's there that you'll find this long obedience in the same direction. We need to learn to love sacrificially. That's what Jeremiah and Jesus both teach us. We need to learn to devote ourselves to a place, to a person. People don't do that in our culture anymore. In our culture, most people are saying, what's this going to get me? How am I going to move forward? How's this going to advance my agenda? How's it going to protect me and mine? America first, right? That's a phrase that people love throwing around. How's this going to help me? We need to learn how to give ourselves away. So choose something in your life right now, whatever it looks like. Choose something in your life that you can commit sacrificially to, that you can give yourself away to, because that's where life is found. That's what a long obedience looks like. And then finally, we learn that Jeremiah and Jesus both speak truth to power. They do that all over their ministries, and it gets them hurt and harmed. But they make sure that they're on the side of those who are vulnerable and oppressed, always. We want to be with those people. That's what matters in the long run, because God's justice is going to come. God's love and peace and grace, they're evident. We need to be on the right side of those things. So imagine a community that does those four things really well, that prays really well, that serves the overlooked really well, that loves sacrificially really well, and that speaks truth to power really well. Imagine 23 years of that community committing to that. That sort of long obedience in the same direction. It has the power to change lives, to change communities, to change the whole world. Jesus did that with fewer people than are in this room right now. That's why Margaret Mead says this. She says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens 
can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So here at Midtown, let's become that sort of community together. Let's become people who refuse the insta-culture. Let's become people who learn from Jeremiah and his 23 years of persistence. Let's be people who give our lives to God every day, embodying the slow, the beautiful, all of the things that God wants to bring us. Let's grab our scallop shells, throw on our backpacks, and start walking this long obedience in the same direction. Pray with me, friends.